Open with me in your Bibles today to the book of Amos, chapter 8, and verses 11 and 12. You'll find that back around Joel and Obadiah in through there in that era. So please turn there if you have your Bibles, as we'll be taking that for a text today. <clears throat> this will be the ninth in a series of sermons on the whole counsel of God and will be the third on the subject of the scriptures as the authority from God. And in our study thus far on the scriptures, we found that God gave the Bible for us to have as the sole rule of faith and practice, that we may know how that we can properly serve and glorify and enjoy him. And therefore, the last Sunday or so that we have assembled together under this subject, we have noted that the authority of Scripture is the means of contact between God and his creation. And that is that when he is going to evangelize a person, he uses the Bible as his point of contact. And so today we want to ask ourselves a question, though, in light of the modern circumstances in which we're under, and that is this question, what is the present condition of the church the modern churches, as it relates to the authority of God's word. When we come down to the modern churches, how do they relate to the authority of God's word? And we have to answer in this negative light. We sincerely believe that nearly all of our modern churches have lost the authority of the word of God. And we want to try to point that out today in a similar condition that existed in 8th century Israel in the days of Amos to see how that they had their Bibles, they had their prophets, they had their priests, and yet they had lost the authority of God's word. Shall we read together from Amos chapter 8 and verse 11? Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but, now note, but of the hearing of the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea, and from the north even to the east, they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, and shall not find it. Now those are some stirring words. God says through his prophet that there was a time coming in the near future when he was going to send a famine in among the midst of the nation of Israel. He says it's not going to be a famine in the physical realm, it's going to be a famine in the spiritual realm. There's going to be a famine of the lack of hearing of the words of the Lord. And people are going to run from the northern part to the eastern, and they're going to run from sea to sea, and they're going to be seeking a word from the Lord, but they're not going to be able to find it. Now, 8th century Israel was an, uh, a, at a point in history in which they were very optimistic about their conditions. They had uh, good land. They had prosperity, they had some rulers, which it was true were corrupted in the upper part of their society, and it was also true the lower part was very downtrodden and beaten, but for the most part money was flowing into the land, and the people were very well content and satisfied. They had a time in which their church attendance was at an all-time high, they were interested in various activities. And yet, in the midst of all this time of optimism, God drops a bombshell in the midst of this people in the person of Farmer Amos. 
Amos was a farmer, and God reached down and called him out and said, I have a message for you to deliver, and it's a message of judgment. And so God literally dropped a bomb in the midst of this optimistic appearing people when he said, judgment is coming, judgment is coming. And you may think that you're well off, but I want you to know that there's coming a time in which that there's soon going to be a famine in the land. It's not going to be a famine in the physical sense, but in the spiritual sense, in which that you're going to seek for my words, and yet you're not going to be able to find them. And so Amos came on this scene, and he had a task at hand, trying to convince the people of God that this was the situation which was soon going to develop, and it wasn't but a few uh, years hence until they were taken into captivity, and truly the prophets uh, had little effect upon them as messengers from God. Now, I want us to take this and see that this was not just a message, though, for 8th century B.C. Israel. This is a message for us in 1976, because similar conditions exist in our land today. We, true, we have corruption in high places. It's true that down on the lower echelon of our society that people are downtrodden, but for the most part money is flowing into our country. There's a spirit of optimism. Our religious figures released that were at all-time high in church attendance. Churches are here and there and everywhere. And yet in the midst of all of this, I think that we can say if we would examine the condition of our own lives and the life of our churches, the feebleness of our worship, the superficiality of our approach, and of the shallowness of our fellowship, that there must be a lack of the hearing of the words of God in our land today. And what are the factors, then, which have influenced the losing of the authority of God's word in this country of the United States of America? If we have lost the authority of God's word, what has caused us to lose it? And I want us to examine that this morning and give us two major reasons why the authority of God's word has been lost for the most part throughout our land and throughout our churches, even though that there are Bibles on every hand, churches on every corner, ministers everywhere, and yet when we come right down to it, the authority of God's word is at an all-time low. What has caused this? And I want to give us two major factors, although there are many, uh, which have contributed to this, but two major factors which has caused a decline in the authority of God's word. And number one is the subtlety of liberal scholarship. The subtlety of liberal scholarship. Now, what do we mean by that? We mean by the word subtlety simply, I can think of no better term and that in which that the serpent came in the garden and in that angel of light form said, Hath God said. Hath God said. Satan is a subtle being. He does not always go about as a roaring lion, but he also appears in the form of men in the form of an angel of light. And when we talk about liberals today, we're talking about individuals who are, for the most part, very sincere men, very outstanding men, very gentle men, very cordial men to get along with. But these are the individuals which have influenced our uh, seminaries in which that our ministers are trained and then our ministers come out and then they set forth these conceptions into our churches. And these liberal scholars, scholars they take great liberty 
in their handling of God's word. It doesn't make any qualm to them at all to contradict Paul and Jesus whenever they feel like it. And yet they do it in a very subtle way, not as a roaring lion, but in a very subtle manner. And I want us to look at a couple of these ways in which that they deal with God's word so as to cause God's word to lose its authority over the hearer that they're speaking to. And the first way that liberal scholars have destroyed the authority of God's word in our churches is that they teach that you can have doctrinal truth apart from historical events. Now, let's digest that just for a moment. And this is what they will teach our young ministers in the seminaries, but let's see what they're saying. They're saying that you can have doctrinal truth apart from historical reality. Now, what that means is this. It means that when you come down to the events in the Bible, that they are not to be viewed as real and historical, but they're only to be taken as parables or myths setting forth some truth from God. Now, what that means is that Adam is not to be understood as a real historical person, but he's only to be understood in the form of a parable or a myth that God is trying to teach truth to man. And so they say that we can have truth from God apart from historical events. And this is a very subtle way. And this has captured the minds of our young ministers when they go to the seminaries. And you can go to nearly any seminary today, and if you're there for two months, you'll come across a professor or two which will be teaching this, which is that, that Adam is not a real person, but he's only a myth, but yet there's some truth which is contained in this myth. Now, this comes down to such matters as the resurrection of Jesus. And these same individuals will tell us, and I have a quote from one, that the physical resurrection of Christ is really irrelevant. It's not important whether Christ rose physically from the grave, but the real important thing is whether or not that we have a spiritual understanding of what God was really trying to teach us in the resurrection. And so they say the historical fact that Christ rose from the grave physically is not to be considered as important. It's whether or not that we've received the spiritual truth from this. So what they subtly interject is that we can have truth from God apart from historical events in the Bible. And so they would explain the physical resurrection of Christ in this fashion. They would say that after, the, after Christ died, the apostles were together one day, and all of a sudden they had a warm feeling. They sensed that Jesus was present, and they felt happy. And some of them even went so far as to have hallucinations that they actually saw Jesus. And so in order to explain this subjective experience which they were going through, they made up the account that Christ must have risen from the grave. And so that's the way they explain the resurrection of Christ, that it is not literally true that he rose from the grave, but that the disciples just had a warm feeling. And in the light of that warm feeling, they had to explain it. And therefore, the historical resurrection of Christ is not an actual fact, but the truth that now his spiritual presence is with us. And so this subtlety has crept into our colleges and our seminaries, and our young men are taught this. And because it hears Dr. So-and-so with a degree behind his name, then he's not to be questioned. 
There's only one problem which even liberals have never been able to figure out and to answer in the resurrection of Christ, and that was there's an empty tomb to deal with. What happened to that body of Jesus? And they have never even begun to scratch the surface on answering that question. No, if we are to have a message from God, and it is true, we must have the events in the Bible as real and historical. Adam was real, and the second Adam was real. And if the second Adam wasn't real, then you and I are of all men most miserable, Paul would tell us, that if Christ did not rise from the grave, then what hope do we have beyond this life? We just have a little religion of ethics that sort of give us some comfort to get us through our three score and ten, and that's it. But Paul says if we don't have more hope than that, we're just like all other men, all other men. So there is a subtlety in this. Now, there's a second way in which that the liberals have destroyed the authority of God's word, and that's this. They have said that the Bible contains the word of God, but it's not really the word of God. Now, that may sound like a play on words, but here's what they mean. You go into their classes and read their books, and here's what they mean by that. They say that the Bible, as we have it today, is not actually the Word of God, but at any given moment when you're reading it, it may become the Word of God when God speaks to you through his Spirit in that. All right, now what's that mean? It simply means this. That I can be reading along in the book of, say, Second Samuel, and I'm not reading God's Word, but all of a sudden God may somehow give me a warm feeling, and at that time that verse becomes God's Word to me. And at another time it may not be God's Word to me. So thereby you have God's Word here and there in some form of plasma floating around, and first it's here, and then it's there, and then it's not there at all. And it also means that what is God's word to you may not be God's word to me. And so instead of having an infallible Bible, we have a Bible which just floats around here and there and everywhere, and you really can't put your finger on it. And so that's why that the liberal, when you begin to press him on some of his beliefs, and you ask for a scriptural account of that, he won't go to scripture, you see. He'll just say, well, this is what God told me when I read the 58th Psalm in the first verse. I had a warm feeling when I read that verse. That was God's word to me for that moment. And so when you press him down on that, well, he'll say, but now then, that's no longer God's word. So you see, you have a, a, a Bible that's neither here nor there nor anywhere. It's just wherever you want to make it. Whatever happens to be at the moment, that's God's word for you. Now, this is the way that liberal scholarship has crept in and it has taken over the authority in our seminaries and has served to destroy the authority of God's word. Now, there's another reason why God's word has lost its authority in our time, and that's in this area, and that's the failure of fundamentalists. The failure of fundamentalists. Now, we could stand here today, and probably most of us, we could rant and rave all day long on the liberals. Because there are always those unknown out there that rarely few of us have to deal with. But let's come down to where we are today. Those of us that call ourselves Bible believers, we believe the Bible. We also have to share equal responsibility for losing the authority of God's Word. Now, how have, how have we contributed to this? First of all, the failure of Bible believers to preach the Word of God 
conscientiously. That is, to preach it in a serious fashion with a holy awareness of what we're doing. Our handling of the Scripture or the Word of God must be a serious examination of what the Word itself has to say. Paul would tell Timothy, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. It's a serious business to preach and teach God's word. And I know many, today I know of a pastor friend that was telling me of a friend of his that nearly had a fit. He couldn't get a sermon. And so Saturday night came and he had no sermon. Sunday morning came and he still had no sermon. And he was in his office and the choir was beginning to sing and as he was about to go out and he still had no message. And finally he ran to a book and there was a piece of paper, a tract came out of it that had seven points and he grabbed that and ran into the pulpit and preached that seven points and then he bragged I had five people confess faith in Christ. And the preacher gently rebuked him as he should. He said, that only shows that God works in spite of you, not because of you. That is not the mark of a serious minister of God's word who has to wait while the choir is singing in the hope that he'll get a message. Paul says, you study to show yourself approved unto God. And it is not a mark of spirituality to enter a pulpit without study and then claim to speak as the Spirit moves. A preacher truly moved by the Spirit diligently studies the Scriptures to avoid careless and misleading interpretations of the Word of God. Our preaching must be an interpretation of Scripture by Scripture. Its very inspiration demands that. God inspired the Bible. And we are to let the Bible interpret the Bible, not that we come up with inspired ideas to interpret it. God is not dealing through an inspired preacher. He's dealing through an inspired word. And it's the duty of the minister of God to let the Scripture interpret the Scripture in that light. And the only way he can do that is to give himself diligently to the study and the ministry of God's holy word. The very inspiration of the Bible demands that it be preached in a conscientious, serious fashion. Too many fanciful ideas have gained popularity in evangelical circles because we fail to abide by the rule that God is his own interpreter. God imparts saving faith through his inspired words, not through the inspired thoughts of the preacher. Therefore, we are exhorted to preach the word, Paul says. Preach the word, not your thoughts, not your... Uh, personal experiences, but to preach the word of God. And if God hadn't intended this, he would have given a continuing revelation whereby I wouldn't have had to have spent time studying God's word. I could have just somehow prayed and he given me a message independent of God's word, and that would have been the message as the prophets did in old. We believe that the revelation of God has now ceased, and we have a completed revelation, and now it is the duty of the minister of God to expound what God has already said in his book, and not look for new thoughts and ideas. So fundamentalism has failed to preach the word of God conscientiously, with an awareness of what we're doing. Then the second way that we have failed as Bible believers, and that is to preach the word of God comprehensively. By that we mean the whole counsel of God. 
Not just little tidbits here and there, but the whole gamut of God's truth. We have a responsibility to set it forth. Paul, in parting from the church at Ephesus, could say, Wherefore I take you to record this day that I am purer from the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare unto you all of the counsel of God. All of it. He says, I am, when you stand before God, I'm going to be free from your destiny, because I've declared unto you all of the counsel of God. I didn't hold back anything from you. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. I know some sermon, some preachers won't preach certain subjects, because they, not because they don't believe them, they say, but they say if I preach on those subjects, it would cause such trouble in my congregation that it would tear it apart, and therefore it's not profitable. And yet God's word flies right in their face when he says all scripture is inspired and is profitable, and is profitable. Just because something isn't popular in the Bible doesn't mean that God's man has a right to avoid that particular section of the scripture. Now, if this be true, then why is the whole Bible not being preached today? Why do men get on their pet hobby horses and ride off into the sunset and never deal with all the issues involved in the scriptures? We are exhorted to examine ourselves, whether we be in the faith. Prove your own selves, Paul says. Then why do we rarely hear sermons on the nature of true saving faith? Peter says to give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, ye shall never fall, Second Peter 1.10. And yet many people may sit in churches all their lives, which have this doctrine in their confession of faith, and still never hear a single message on God's sovereign election of grace. What is our problem? I say that we as fundamentalists have failed to preach the word of God comprehensively. We've approached it just like the liberals, in that we've said we'll preach this, but we won't preach this. And as a result, why the authority of God's word has been lost throughout our land and throughout our churches. Amos was told that there was coming a time in which there'd be a drought of the hearing of the word of God, and people would run seeking after it, but not be able to find it. God help us to examine the whole gamut of the Bible. And when something is difficult and when something is going to hit home in our lives, God give us some men that will go on and preach and teach that rather than avoiding it. What's the difference between a liberal taking his scissors and cutting out the portions of the Bible which he does not want and the fundamentalist who does not, who will not preach that portion? What's the difference? Both of it is an expression of unbelief. Both of them. Expression of unbelief. Now, not only have we failed to preach the word of God conscientiously and comprehensively, but we have failed to preach the word of God objectively. Now, our modern religious assemblies are designed to produce maximum subjective experiences with minimum objective truth. That is, say just as little as you can say, but we'll have everything arranged where we can get the maximum experience for those who are present. Minimize objective preaching and teaching, but maximize experience. I personally heard a minister in Springfield, Missouri, speaking to a group of some 1,000, claim, now listen, that he could quote the poem, Mary Had a Little Lamb, and have over 100 people walk down the aisle professing faith in Christ. I heard that personally. That he could stand and quote, Mary Had a Little Lamb, and have 100 people walk down the aisle professing faith in Christ. Now, light 
and frothy preaching, which majors on stories and personal experiences of the speaker, may entertain and produce fleshly excitements, but they distract from the authority of Scripture. Did you hear that? They distract from the authority of Scripture. And people just go to hear the preacher's exciting stories and watch him perform. And they go out and they have no concept that God has spoken to me today and I'm under obligation to perform his duty. What has happened? You see how we have destroyed the authority of God's word? We've raised up a generation in the last hundred years overall of preachers who do not preach the word of God objectively. But they preach it here and there and everywhere. Now, this type of subjective preaching has produced an appalling distaste in the few for the patient day in and day out exposition of the Word of God. You Sunday school teachers, are you discouraged in your class? You want to know why? You know what you're dealing with? You're dealing with individuals who do not have a hunger for the patient day in and day out exposition of God's Word. They've got to have something exciting. See, I don't get discouraged. Just go right on and preach and teach God's word. You see, because the multitudes have been subjected unto a particular type of conditioning over the last 50 to 75 years in which they know no better. But we must come back into an exposition of God's word, what God has to say. Sermons are a dime a dozen, and yet there's a drought of hearing of the word of God. In many churches, the Old Testament has virtually been forgotten has virtually been forgotten. One of the first things that men like Luther and Calvin did at the time of the Reformation was to open the Bible and to preach through it verse by verse, book by book, chapter by chapter. And in doing so, that began the greatest movement since Pentecost in the revival of truth in the church. They, their effort was not unrewarded. But I ask today, look out around our land. Where do we see this? Where do we see the patient day-in and day-out ministry and exposition of Scripture? We see a lot and hear a lot of exciting themes. Come and hear what I'm going to preach on here. The wheel within the wheel. <laughs> Such like this. And mine attracts people from everywhere. But where do we hear a day-in and day-out consistent ministry of God's Word? There's a drought of the hearing of the words of God in our land. The modern hearers of the word are like the hearers that Paul addressed on Mars Hill. Let's turn there to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. And let's look how Paul, who he had to deal with, and how he preached unto these. Acts chapter 17 and beginning in verse 18. Here he's in Athens, that great center of, of learning humanistic wisdom. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and the Stoics encountered him, and some said, What will this babbler say? Others, he seemed to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him unto Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which thou speakest? For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. And then God, by inspiration, puts a parenthesis in here to describe these hearers. Now, look what kind of hearers they were. For all the Athenians and strangers who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. See what kind of hearers Paul was addressing? These were individuals that they wanted to hear some new thing all the time. 
And that's what Mars Hill was for. It's so that some new philosopher could come in there and he could stand there on the Mount of Areopagus, that court, and he could express what his feelings were. So they lived to hear and tell new things and new experiences. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we have developed a whole generation of preachers alike and hearers which major on this particular type of the hearing of God's word. The modern hearer runs off to some way-out prophecy conference and hears some quaint view setting forth some speculation about when the Lord is going to return. Then he speeds over here to a deeper spiritual life conference and hears some way-out view on sanctification. And then, when this excitement wears off, he finds his religious high from seeking after the gift of tongues. Here and here and here, like that it was told by Amos here. The people are going to run from the east to the north. They're going to run from sea to sea, seeking the word of God, but they shall not find it. Beloved, that's descriptive of 1976 American evangelicalism. People running from church to church, go to this church a while, and then they get bored with what they're saying, and they run over here to this one, and then this one, and then this one. Why? Because they have not been conditioned to the hearing of God's word. They're like the hearers on Mars Hill. Tell us some new thing, Paul. Give us something new all the time. Now this, in bringing this to a close, this would be like Paul was saying, describing an individual's who are ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. If you read your health manuals, you'll find your instructions there that in beginning to condition young infants to their food to make sure that you condition them to the taste of uh, vegetables, and meat products before you introduce the, the taste of something sweet. Now, what they mean by that is that when that baby starts eating, you'd better not put that sweet fruit first, because when you put those green beans in there, you get it spit out right all over your glasses. Some of you have had that experience, haven't you? Now, what happens? Our experts tell us that that infant that we are conditioning them for certain ways of what they're expecting. And to make sure that they get the necessary protein and, and that which will give them that of substance to build their own. Get them adjusted to that taste before we introduce the sweet taste to them. Or else you're going to raise an individual who will have little taste for green vegetables, meat, and so forth. But they'll always be wanting sweet cereal, sugar, and things of this. And these are the young individuals that run out after they have all the sugar in their diet starting out, and my, they're ready to go in the morning. But then about 10 o'clock, they're run down because they haven't the necessary diet to sustain them. Now, ladies and gentlemen, may I say that this same thing is true in the spiritual realm. That when we become conditioned to a certain type of ministry that is designed to entertain and we like to hear the stories of exciting events that the preacher has been through, what this does, it produces in the hearers a distaste for the meat and potatoes of God's word. And they will not sit under that because when that is tried to give them, it's spit right back out and they're not interested in it. 
And this is why fundamentalism, Bible-believing preaching, so-called, has served to destroy the authority of God's Word throughout America in the same fashion that the liberals have in some areas in our churches. Amos says they're going to run to and fro, here and there, east and west, north and south, from sea to sea, and they're going to seek the Word of God, but they shall not find it. I ask this in closing. Is that descriptive of you? Is that descriptive of me? Do you have a reverence and a respect for the authority of this book? Or is this book, can you get along just as well without it? Now ask ourselves that question, beloved. If I was put on another planet without this book, and as long as I had health and something to eat and a place to stay, could I get along without it? If you think you can and you're living a life that's characteristic of that now, it means the authority of God's word is not reigning over your life. What authority does this book have when it speaks? Have you subjected it unto your ideas and you can run to it when you get lonely or something and open it up? Or is it like the psalmist says, I delight to do thy will, O God. I want to know what God has for me. And does this play a major part in your life, in your Christian experience? Is it your road map that you hide it within your bosom? And oh, take away everything, but Lord, don't take away your word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Does the word of God have that authority in your life? 